Uh, good morning, church. Glad that we're together in this way, that we can be together. And uh, welcome uh, to the living room. Uh, just a reminder, the sermon notes actually for this series of messages on Ephesians are available online. You can actually get them, I think, just by clicking above here where you're, where you're streaming from. And uh, have you checked out the Ecclesia podcast? This is a podcast uh, Joel and Marissa and uh, others have been putting together and just invite you to listen in as we think about where we're moving and what we're learning as a church in this season. Um, and reminder, right after the, uh, the service today, our time together, you can join in a post-service sermon discussion on what we're talking about today from Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, great words that we sang together that are centering us on what it means to be the people of Jesus, to trust him in these days. You know, we have, we have family friends uh, with a son who's six foot gazillion. He's a big kid, fine young man. And there are times are hanging out with your parents' friends and their kids isn't always at the top of your list as a teenager, right? You may remember that if that was, if you can remember back to those moments or if that's where you are currently Thanks for enduring those moments. But we noticed something as we'd hang out as families that our youngest daughter, who was two foot nothing, uh, could grab him by the hand and get him to read her books and to play with him. It was pretty amazing. The powerful drawn in by the powerless. Or perhaps it's simply true power at work. About a year ago, our 19-year-old went to Eastern Europe for the summer. The big guy with the whirlwind global adventure came home tired, exhausted, bearded. The first morning he came home, uh, or he came up from his bedroom after a good night's sleep, he was looking all grown up. And this little sister, this little one again, who had missed him so much, took him by the hand to the couch. And soon there he was as well, reading book after book after book to her. The powerful drawn in by the powerless. Or perhaps it's simply true power at work, the power that can get me to wear this. Happy Father's Day to you dads out there. Um, a few years ago, at the height of another challenging social moment, the Syrian refugee crisis, I was part of a community friendship center that was serving newcomers to Canada. The friendship center smack dab in an area of Surrey, BC, known as Little Baghdad. And so there were many Iraqis, but there were also Syrians and Sudanese and Lebanese and Egyptians, a buffet of the Arabic-speaking world. It was a beautiful place. Most, of course, were Muslim. And into this mix came a 20-something aviation student with a big smile. He was from an Iranian Muslim family. And one day, uh, he was passing by a Chinese church in Vancouver when he heard singing. He was intrigued, and so he went inside where he was befriended by Mandarin-speaking Christians. And eventually, befriending them, he became a Christian himself to the great despair of his family because two controversial things happened after that. The first was he fell in love with the Chinese pastor's daughter. It's another blow to the family uh, values. And he began connecting to our friendship center where he began particularly befriending Iraqis. You see, back in the 1980s, there was an eight-year war between Iran and Iraq. They fought a brutal war. Over a million people died. And his family life was shaped by that history. And his parents were shaken. A son who was now a Christian, a Chinese pastor's daughter was now his girlfriend. And actually, by now, they're actually married. 
And now he's hanging out with Iraqis. But this young man's life was the envy of newcomers to Canada because it's all that they wanted for their own children. It's why they had found their way to Canada to have this type of new life in the same way this young man was discovering uh, a new direction. In the eyes of the refugees, this young man was powerful. And I watched often as confused and hurting Iraqis came to the Friendship Center and Reza, his name, would go straight to them. He'd help them apply for government assistance. He'd drive them to appointments. The Iranian serving the Iraqi. When a group of men began meeting to investigate the life of Jesus, Reza was right there with them. And he often led that group. A young man in Christ among other Muslim men who now found themselves in a powerless cultural position. A group that included a former Sudanese member of parliament who was brilliant, a Moroccan businessman, and Iraqis who were curious about what this was all about. God had taken the powerful and the powerless by the hand and brought them together. Strangers and enemies were discovering a different way through the transformed life of a young Iranian who was introduced to Jesus through Chinese Christians. You can't write that script. We're living, you and I, in spectacular, in a spectacular moment in human history. Racism, xenophobia, mistrust, brokenness, hatred, and cries for justice abound. The human dilemma of the relationship between the powerful and the powerless is dominating our doom scrolling and headlines. And we always say, and mean it of course, that this time it'll be different. This is a very confusing time though to be alive. Which news feed has it right? Are you convinced? Which protest should be joined? Do you know? Who has power? And who doesn't? Which hashtag deserves a retweet or a like? We all have much to deeply consider in these days. And we're a church family with brothers and sisters who are black, who are Asian, Southeast Asian, Hispanic, a mix of European descendants who at times would have killed each other if they had the chance. Our church family is beautiful. And all those people's that I just named, that we represent, all came from somewhere else to here at this moment. Sometimes because we had the power to do so, sometimes because we were the powerless who were on the run, and we all now make our home on the unceded territory of the Silix peoples, the people that God, our creator, first entrusted this land to. How do we work through this beautiful mess that we're part of, created and inherited? It's a big question. Emmanuel Katangola, a Ugandan, and Chris Rice, an American, write something profound. They say this, Christianity understands the highest good in a broken world to be the transformation of strangers and enemies into friends. They continue and say, the question is, how are our desires to be fundamentally transformed so that we want life together with people who have hurt us? That, they say, is a political question. 
So as we come to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9 today, we are talking politics. You've been waiting for this moment, haven't you? Slaves, obey your, par your, your parents. <laughs> okay, let's start that one again. Why don't we get you to read along at home so that I don't mess it up for you? Are you ready? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 9. I'm going to read it as well, but just somebody at home, you can read this out loud as we go along. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, how is this about politics? Well, there's no mention of Caesar or senators or emerging Greek democracy. There's no talk of political parties or left or right or progressives or conservatives, which is what politics has been reduced to in our current social climate. The polarizing politics of today has destroyed our capacity to see each other as human. It minimalizes real hurt and pain. It entrenches rather than awakens cooperation. It demands to be right rather than to do right. Politics has become a bad word, a hammer. Shows up in even how we define the word. Oxford Dictionary defines politics this way. The activities associated with the governance of a country or other area, especially the debate of conflict among individuals or parties having or hoping to achieve power. How did we get there? This is the definition that centers on conflict and the grasp for power. It reveals a lot about how we have come to use this word. The dictionary just describes how we're describing something. But the root of the word politic is, in Greek, polis, the city, the citizenry. Originally, polis was about the common citizenship of the city, about conversing over what is best for the affairs of the place that we call home. It's not about conflict or power. It's about shared responsibility. And when Jesus used the word ecclesia for his body, the church, in Matthew chapter 16, which is the same word that Paul has been using all through Ephesus for the church, ecclesia, he was describing a new citizenry who take responsibility for the time and place they are in, who do politics differently. The ecclesia, a people submitted to a new Lord, is a social revolution in a world of conflict and grasping for power. Now, of course, every newly minted political leader claims they will do politics differently. But every revolution of change can become as unjust or even more unjust than the one before. Jesus said that through those confessing his true identity, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, he would build his ecclesia, the church, and the gates of hell would cringe, Matthew chapter 16. 
Jesus said that the Gentiles lord it over others, the powerful overpowering the powerless. But Jesus said to his unlikely disciples, it shall not be so among you. Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 and 26. This is the phenomenal promise and vision of a social revolution founded in Jesus. Jesus' way of leading was never the way that even his own disciples assumed he would. On Palm Sunday, he rides into Jerusalem in humility on a donkey, not on a war horse, as the crowds declare his kingship. At the moment of his greatest popularity, he refuses to grasp power. And he puts on an Old Testament vision of a different kind of king. A few nights later, when he is betrayed, Jesus kneels. He takes the role of a servant of the powerless and he washes his disciples' feet in John chapter 13. And he says, as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The disciples, you see, had no mental framework to put that act into. But Jesus says... This social revolution of servant love is the prime example that his followers know him and his true kingly identity. And then in John chapter 15, he then turns to his small group of followers and he says something so radical. He says to them, my command is this, John chapter 15, verses 12 to 15. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. And so the fellowship of the King of Kings is a communion of friends commissioned to serve. Jesus' politics, the citizenship responsibility for the affairs of the city of God in this broken world is friendship, love, and servanthood. And he calls us friends when we obey his command to serve others like he did. The cross will be the ultimate expression of this kind of politics. The spirit given to the church will lead us into this kind of head-shaking social revolution like an Iranian leading a Bible study for Iraqis. This is countercultural. This is the invitation to the powerful and the powerless to a whole new way of being. And this is why Christianity understands the highest good in a broken world to be the transformation of strangers and enemies into friends. The gospel is about reconciliation. The good news is that in Christ, God has reconciled we powerful and powerless sinners to himself. And in Christ, he also reconciles us to one another so that we can be his ecclesia in this broken world. This has been the message of Ephesians. Man, we've been pounding away at this. I hope you're catching it. The good news of Jesus produces a radical revolution that we might call the politics of reconciliation, the work of turning strangers and enemies into friends, because our center is not our politics, is not our race, is not our power or powerlessness, but Jesus Christ. 
and our grace-filled, saintly position with Him. The gospel brings about a social revolution, a completely different world, because God has made us His household, His children, His friends who serve like Him. And this maturing understanding that transforms us is what Christian homes are about. That's what we talked about last week at the beginning of chapter, from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through the first part of chapter 6. And it now upends society as those filled with the Spirit begin to see and live with one another across political and economic lines. And this is crucial. We need to understand this. That what Paul is saying here is addressing how Christians treat one another in the social and political realities of their day. This is consistent with what Jesus said. Our love for one another is the first place of witness to a broken world. And it's entirely relevant for today. So let's get back to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. If you have your scriptures, keep it open there. Follow along. Look at these powerful words. Because we're now moving from marriage and parenting to what is really a wider household story in Roman society, the place of slaves and masters. Because most homes, most households, had slaves who lived with the pater familias. Slavery, you see, was a basic social assumption in Rome. Depending on where you were in the empire, slaves made up anywhere from 20 to 50% of the population. Yeah, 20 to 50%. And Ephesus played a major role in the slave trade. The city of Artemis, Ephesus, was a top three center for this crucial social and economic engine of the empire. About 10,000 slaves a day, yeah, a day, would move through Ephesus and the nearby island of Delos in the Aegean Sea. 10,000 a day. Ephesus may be a cool tourist attraction today, but it was a destination of human degradation and despair for most visitors in the first century. The events of the last number of weeks here in North America, including Black Lives Matter, has roots in the slavery of Africans in the last millennium. It was horrible and evil, the degrading and capitalizing of human beings because of the color of their skin. And Roman slavery was like, but not like in some ways, the racist slavery whose horrific legacy impacts us still. In 1860, slaves in the United States comprised about 12% of the population. That's a startling number to be sure. But depending on where you were in the Roman Empire, as I said, slaves could make up 20 to 50% of the people. And the number of slaves in the Roman Empire was so high that the Stoic philosopher Seneca, who died three years after this letter to Ephesians was, was written, noted, he says this, a proposal was once made in the Senate to distinguish slaves from free men by their dress, by what they would wear. It then became apparent how great would be the impending danger if our slaves should begin to count the number. If people start wearing their identity and their clothing reveals them as slaves, suddenly everybody will start looking around and going, oh my goodness, look at all of us. And so when Paul speaks to slaves and masters now, he is speaking directly to a social and political reality that is in the room. He's touching a hot potato. He's emphasizing the social 
and political consequences of the arrival of the gospel in the hearts of people. Because if God has elevated anyone, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, from a life without God and without hope in the world to the status of saint, adopted heir, and child of God, then how are slaves and masters supposed to live? And there had been slave revolts in the past, like that of Spartacus, which happened only a hundred years before this moment. So should the truth of the gospel lead Christian slaves to rebellion in the name of liberation? Paul is now addressing the gospel's impact on the public sphere. And slavery in Rome had deep, deep roots. In Greek and Roman mythology, slavery went back to Zeus and Jupiter's overthrow of Saturn. If you remember any of this or are taking any of this in high school, the overpowering and the enslaving of the deity Saturn in the religious myths of Greek and Rome gave a foundation for a society where those who ruled like Zeus or Jupiter, they went by the same name, one Greek or two different names, one Greek, one Roman. Zeus being the very first deity of Rome could enslave others. So a foundation for that that mythology, that religious perspective gave a foundation for the enslavement of others. Every social movement has a worldview. And we better know what it is. And the biblical worldview revealed an entirely radical deity, one who didn't enslave, but who stooped to serve and love his creation. And so Roman slavery ended up actually not being racial. It was all inclusive. It was about power and powerlessness. In fact, a Roman could enslave another Roman. The empirical engine of Rome depended on slaves in all kinds of vocations and callings, from education to the mines, from agriculture to the arts. If you have visited or appreciated anything that lingers from the history of Rome, you have applauded the work of slaves. You have. Slaves could gain their freedom and become freedmen, they were called, but freedmen often became slave owners themselves and sometimes the worst of masters. A slave in Rome was known by this name, and kids, it sounds like a dinosaur, Andropodon. Slaves could be known, were known as Andropodon, which meant literally a thing with feet of a man. Slaves were subhuman almost mythical, unreal creatures, living tools similar to your domestic animal. They were the lowest of the low in Roman society, yet having as many of them as you could was a sign of privilege. Slaves were often people captured in wars and then sold in the Ephesian slave market. They were mercilessly mistreated and abused. They were without power. They were if, if a child was born into slay, as a slay, to, a, to a slave, even if that father was a freedman or even the slave owner, because that would happen, that child was deemed a slave forever. Your social status was stuck, much like the caste system in Southeast Asia that exists today. And you should go and read up on the delete people, the untouchables of India. In fact, birth into slavery in Rome became the greatest source of slaves in the empire than all other means combined. You were a slave factory if you were a slave woman. 
Slaves were considered untrustworthy. In fact, their testimony in court was only deemed truthful if what they said was obtained through torture. And if you can imagine, therefore, what slaves thought about their masters. Imagine what they thought. This mess of power and powerlessness, empire and pain, were all mixed into a Roman household. Which is why Paul moves from husbands and wives and children to addressing slaves and masters. Because slaves were the property of the Roman household in the same way that a woman and a child was. And so having redefined the Rome-centered home to a Christ-centered home, Paul now turns to flip the social structure, the politics and economics of Rome on its very head. But he does this in the Jesus way. He brings a political revolution in the way Jesus did with his disciples, with a call to love and friendship. What Jesus had modeled and called his disciples to is what Paul carries into the heart of the Roman slave trade world. Christianity understands the highest good in a broken world to be the transformation of strangers and enemies into friends. So let's look carefully at what Paul is saying. Verses 5 to 8, he calls slaves to obey their earthly masters with sincerity. Don't fake it. Serve as you would Christ. Everything a slave does in relationship to their master is now done as if unto Christ, as one whose first identity and accountability is Christ. A slave, this is so crucial to catch, a slave is elevated to the status of heir with Christ and called a new creation himself, called to center his every action on Christ himself. There are four verses there about slaves, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Look carefully. So slave, as you would Christ, verse 5. Servants of Christ, verse 6. As to the Lord, verse 7. Because you will receive from the Lord, verse 8. Do you see it? Couldn't be more clearer. A slave is no longer to behave like the Gentiles, but to imitate God. That's the invitation way back at the beginning of chapter 5. Let's imitate God. They are like wives, husbands, and children to act like Christians. And that wasn't a badge of honor in Ephesus. Paul was writing this from prison because, of he was, because he was a Christian. Paul himself often refers to himself all the way through his, God, his letters as a slave of Christ. You can look at the beginning of a number of his letters, like Philippians and Romans, and he introduces himself as a slave of Christ. He names himself the lowest of the low under the lordship of Jesus. And remember, this is the position that Jesus himself took when he washed his disciples' feet. Paul is calling slaves to God-likeness, to imitate God. And so a Christian slave, positioned as they were in Christ, spiritually in the heavenly places, was to bring a political and social revolution by being the best slave of Jesus possible. A slave's new freedom and identity in Christ would not be seen in rebellion, but in Christ-centeredness. Their service was witness to their master. And so think about it. Just think about it for a second. In a social climate where slaves were a huge percentage of the population and the economic engine of the empire, 
the powerless, were to become the one primary avenue by which the ecclesia would be seen at work in the world. Slaves were covert missionaries of hope, elevated powerlessness to ambassadors of reconciliation. Isn't that awesome? Within the very fabric of Rome, these missionaries of hope, these ambassadors of reconciliation would be living. They were doing a different kind of politics. The word, this word to a Christian, Jew, uh, Christian slave who may not have even had a Christian master is powerful. If you're a Christian slave, this is what you need to hear. This is a word to Christians. And this might seem unfair from our perspective, where we are now historically, and it would be actually, if masters weren't also called to the revolution as well. So that brings us to chapter to verse 9. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do the same to them. Now think about it. Masters do to slaves like slaves do to you. Get down and wash their feet. In every household, it was not Caesar, but the slave who modeled the life of, that God expects from his children. In every Christian, in every household where there was a Christian slave, the life of God was being modeled a social revolution of servanthood. And so masters pay attention to that and learn from them. Let the powerless take your hand. Masters, stop threatening. Literally, stop being a menace. Stop acting like Romans and act like the children of God. Be submissive to your slave. Be Jesus to them. It's almost impossible for us to understand how radical this is. I, it's, honestly, it's very difficult for us at this moment of history to understand how absolutely radical this is. And says Paul, their master, to the master, he's saying, your master as, and their master is the same master in heaven. And he doesn't see difference. He doesn't see favoritism. He doesn't see partiality. He doesn't see status or social standing. This is a word to Christian masters who may not have Christian slaves. So both master and slave are accountable to one Lord. You don't answer to Rome, master. You answer to God. You don't ask, answer to your master, slave. You answer to God. And this centering on accountability is desperately needed today. Christian in the city of change, you are accountable to God. You have a position in Christ as an heir. Now walk upright as a child of God and act as if you will give an answer to God for how you behave toward another human being. Live into the promises of God. Put your hope in that. Live out the ways of God for you will be held accountable. The gospel you see, my friends, I just breaks my heart to have to say this to people who are Christian. The gospel, not your politics, is the great equalizer of people. 
But it goes even further. While we are all equal and one in Christ, we are called, this is phenomenal, we are called not to the celebration of equality, not even to the celebration of diversity. We are called to the celebration of servanthood. In Christ, you see, we're equal as sinners saved by grace. We are equal in our position and our identity in Christ. And we are equal in our call to the social revolution of servanthood. In Christ, we are equal in seeing others. Pay attention. We are equal in seeing others as more important than ourselves. In the same way that God saw us all as worthy of the greatest sacrifice... Our current screaming for equality is a voice we need to hear in our culture. But nothing will change until we see others not just the same as us, but of more worth than us. This is what the gospel does. It produces humility, servanthood, a social revolution where even an Iranian serves Iraqis. Where powerless and power are redefined by mutual submission. In the kingdom of God, servanthood is not abandoned. It is expanded and personalized. Listen, I don't expect you to serve me. I expect me to serve you. That's the position of the Christian. I don't expect you to serve me. I expect me to serve you. I expect my life to reflect the servanthood of Christ. I serve you as I would serve Christ, period. I am accountable to Jesus Christ who will come again and will judge all this broken mess and my part in it. And notice that neither slave nor master in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 to 9 is called to grasp for the role of power. You are invited to rush to serve, to be like Christ. This is the love one another as I have loved you that Jesus called his disciples to. Christian masters and slaves are a living example of the arrival of the new reality of the ecclesia that takes responsibility for their time and place. And this social revolution was so important that another New Testament letter shows the power of this in action. It's fascinating that in God's preservation of his word for us through history, this little book at the end, toward the end of the New Testament called Philemon has been preserved for us. Philemon was a master, a wealthy Roman who became a Christian during Paul's ministry in Ephesus in 52 to 54 AD. That's when Philemon became a Christian. He was from Colossae, which was a city about 200 kilometers east of Ephesus. And he may very well have been in Ephesus when he came to know Christ in order to purchase slaves from the slave market. Now, the letter to Philemon is the practical living out of these words that Paul has been talking about here in chapter 6. Philemon's slave, his name was Onesimus, he was not a Christian. And he had run away, probably having stolen from his master. And he ends up in Rome, where Paul is imprisoned. Philemon has every legal right, every legal right to kill Onesimus for his, for his insubordination. In fact, there would have been slave hunters out looking for Onesimus. And Philemon, uh, 
And so even though uh, he was a Christian, Philemon's social and economic identity are threatened in the Roman Empire. Onesimus, though, in Rome finds Paul, he probably knew him because, you know, through Philemon and the different relationships that they'd had. And lo and behold, now Onesimus becomes a Christian too. Now it's fascinating because Paul does not instruct Onesimus to keep running for freedom. He doesn't write Philemon, telling him that he's keeping Onesimus so that nothing bad will happen to him. No, he writes this letter, which is in our New Testament, and he gives it to Onesimus to deliver to his master. <laughs> Gulp. Onesimus, now a Christian, must humble himself to reconcile and live the gospel, for he is under another Lord than either Caesar or Philemon. And Philemon must receive the one who wronged him in these powerful words of verse 16 of Philemon, no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. <laughs> Do you see what Paul just does? Power and powerlessness are replaced by identity in Christ. The highest good in a broken world becomes the transformation of strangers and enemies into friends. Philemon and Onesimus are no longer defined by the political or social status of their day, but by Christ, by the family of God, by obedience to Christ, regardless of their social status. Slave and master are together the ecclesia. And the political statement made by this household of Philemon would be undeniable. It would be a window into a strange new world. Love and friendship in Christ, brotherhood, familyhood, this is the politics that changes things. And tradition has it that Onesimus the slave, welcomed back by Philemon, who was working out his own discipleship, rose to prominence and even surpassed his master. It's believed that Onesimus would eventually become the leader of the church in Ephesus and was finally martyred for his faith. So let us not give up in freedom what was never given up in persecution. And so we come to this, my friends. In these politically charged days, in these days of frustration and chaos and voices screaming on the left and the right, in the cries of the powerless, and sometimes in the excuses of the powerful, in these days when you are following your favorite news source, maybe you're doing it right now, you're scrolling your news. In these days when you're following your favorite news source and living by the social and political pressures, in these days when you might be take, making a villain or an enemy out of people who don't see the world like you do, even others in the family of God, in these days when everyone wants to be right, in these days begin a political revolution. Understand that the highest good in a broken world is the transformation of strangers and enemies into friends. This is the politics of reconciliation. This is the unlikely politics of the ecclesia. This is the gospel in action. It is the way of Jesus. The call of the gospel is to attach to the Father and his ways to walk maturely as the children of light. Where are you imitating darkness? To move by the Spirit in the opposite direction is costly. It demands we serve one another like Christ did. The social revolution of the ecclesia in the city of change must begin within 
the ecclesia. It demands that we center on Jesus, that we know him. It demands we die to self and the social identity or the politics that we cling to. It demands we take a risk and grab the hand of the powerless or the powerful, serve because we are accountable to a true master and build a friendship. Does that sound too hard? Is it too costly? If believers will not embrace this social revolution, this new politics of reconciliation, friends, then we don't know Jesus. We're not making him known. If you're not a follower of Jesus, can I invite you to submit to him today? And if, you're, and if you are a follower of Jesus, for the love of our God and the love of this world that he loves, obey the teachings of our Lord.